Welcome to the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast, where educators come together to discuss their journey on the road to financial independence. Now, please join our co-host, Dave and Brandon, as they prepare to help other educators get fit with their finances. Welcome and thanks for joining us on episode 102 of the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast. If you think your story can help other educators and you'd be willing to come on the show, please shoot me an email at getfiteducator at gmail.com. And coach, we had the pleasure to interview George Camel last week in our first episode since the big announcement of the Fit Position book. Uh, Does it get much better than George Camel when it comes to being frugal? Um, it doesn't get much better, but if it gets better, we've got the guest on the show today that makes it better. Uh, if it's possible, uh, we, we've got another uh, heavy hitter on the show tonight uh, or today. Um, we're recording in the evening, but 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 yeah, uh, Jeremy is awesome. The Personal Finance Club, been following that stuff for years, or for well, I say for years, for, for, for the years that I've been involved in it, and I'm really looking forward to this interview and this conversation. Um, but Dave, I've been really pleased with the with the feedback that we've gotten from the book, I really think I really think it's going to help a lot of people. I think it was it, it was it was really a, a great thing to take all of the information that we've gotten from so many different people over the course of the last couple of years and just kind of neatly organize it in a book where it's easily accessible. And um, you know, our hope is to give hope. So I think I, I think it's doing that. And I think that's exactly what what Jeremy brings to the table today. Jeremy, I believe, and and who knows, he's very transparent. If you've never followed Jeremy at the Personal Finance Club, follow him on social media, go to his website. He's transparent about his journey with vehicles and housing and how much he spends and how much he makes and how much he gives. Literally, it's one of the places I go to most often. I go to my Ohio State recruiting websites uh, to check on the Buckeyes. He's a Michigan guy. He's our third Michigan graduate that's on the show, by the way. So you're number three, Jeremy. But then I go to the Personal Finance Club because it is so motivational. I think Jeremy's message is hope that so many times people, especially teachers and middle income earners, don't think they can do it. But when you look at Jeremy's graphics, they're simple, but they're genius and they're life-changing. So we're going to talk about some of those graphics today and maybe some of the ones that he's most proud of and the ones that make the biggest impact. And I have those all throughout my PowerPoints, teaching personal finance here in North Carolina uh, from the Personal Finance Club. So Jeremy, welcome to uh, Eastern North Carolina here. I hope things are going well in San Diego. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm on the opposite coast now, and thanks for the Michigan shout-out, Go Blue. Kind of a weird uh, a coincidence that you invite a lot of millionaire successful people and you get a lot of Michigan grads. I don't know if that's coincidence, luck, what you want to call it, but <laughs> thanks for the uh, Michigan shout-out, Go Blue. Yeah, we have the other podcast on people who are rehabilitating from prison. We have way more Michigan graduates on that one, but sure. this one's our <laughs> other podcast, and it works out as well. To be fair, there's a lot of Ohio State uh, guys on that one as well. So that so, that is true. It, it just turns out the Rust Belt well well represented in that one. There we go. So Jeremy, <laughs> tell us a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to today, and if you don't mind, maybe taking a few minutes and just updating our audience with what you do, how you got to the position you're at, and maybe what your current net worth is looking like uh, before we get into some of the teacher stuff. Yeah, the the you know the condensed story of my life is I, I turned down a job offer from Microsoft coming out of college and decided to start my own company instead. Um, for years, I was grinding at that. I was living on credit cards for a couple of years, um, worked up some credit card debt. The company started doing better, paid off the debt, grew the company at the age of 34. I sold the company for just over $5 million. 
my share after taxes was about $2 million. Uh, two years after that, I quit my job working for the company that bought us. And all the, you know, I know teachers are listening to this and they're like, oh, great, this dude just sold an internet company. But, you know, before, during, and after that, I was living very frugally. I was investing along the way. Even if I had never sold my company, I would have become a millionaire over the course of my career. I was only paying myself $36,000 a year in Southern California. So I was living on very little income. I was even living below that so I could invest. Um, but yeah, I was able to retire, You know, quit my job at the age of 36. And then a year later, after kind of doing nothing for a year, I started Personal Finance Club, which is what I do now. I basically help people learn about personal finance and investing. And yeah, as of today, my net worth Depending on what the market's doing, I haven't checked it today, but it's around $4.5 million today. So my $2 million has more than doubled, almost exclusively just from investing, growth of the market, continuing to live frugally. And that's kind of my financial plan for the remainder of my days, keep letting that money grow, living off some of the growth of it and letting uh, and still living frugally. You know that we always talk about how, roughly speaking, your money will double in the market about every 10 years. And so the hardest thing is to get to 100,000. It's like, that's the, that's the mark. Once you get to 100,000, it seems like you can really start seeing some real progress. And was that, is that kind of what you, what you found with your money in the market? And, 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 and what, kind of, what kind of investor, what kind of investments uh, have you kind of dove into with your money? Yeah, for sure. I think people early in their investing journey can get discouraged because, you know, they go at it for six months and then the market goes down a little bit and they're like, oh, you know, I barely made any progress. And I'm like, well, investing is is a long-term game and it does build like a snowball. And so early on, there's a lot of packing and rolling and it's you doing the hard work. It's just the saving that's all the hard work early on. But then the snowball starts to go downhill and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, my journey was a little bit unusual because I had that huge acceleration. I'd gr- I did get about $100,000 of saving and investing just the old fashioned way by, you know, a few hundred bucks a month. And then I got a $2 million infusion, but then I kind of got this fast forward to the end where then it was going faster and faster. Um, and, and what I invest in is just what's called an index fund. It's the stock market. Um, there's this kind of misconception out there that the stock market is risky, but I think when people talk about the risk, I like to separate the two major categories of investing. There's this speculation category where you're guessing what's going to happen. You're going to guess if a one stock's going to do better than the other. You're going to guess if the market's going to go up or go down this week. You're going to guess if Bitcoin's going to do well. You're going to be- guess if which, you know, which uh if it's like electronics or real retail or or transportation. It's all guessing. And that's what's on the news. And so because there's always a speculation on the news, people think it's risky. But investing is something different. Investing is where you keep acquiring more and more shares and just holding them forever. And investing is not risky because you can basically count on the fact that going forward, the market is going to return value. The market's going to, you know, the companies of the world are going to do business. The companies of the world are going to grow. The companies of the world are going to profit. And if you are an owner and every single month you're just acquiring a few more shares and you keep ramping up, you're going to experience over time that exponential growth. And so I don't do speculation. If, if you ask me for the next hot stock tip, or you ask me which segment sector is going to do better, or if you ask me if we're going to finish up or down this year, my answer is always going to be, I have no idea. And anyone who does tell you is, is full of it, in my opinion. But what I do know is I'm going to keep acquiring shares. So that's why I buy an index fund. It's basically buying all the stocks all at once at a very low cost so that I can just keep acquiring more shares indefinitely and let that compound growth continue to grow. 
Um, a question regarding your investing when it comes to index fund. I'm a big fan of VTSAX and VTI through Vanguard, the, the total stock market index funds. Do you like to have an international element to your investing? I do. You know, very smart, like thoughtful, experienced, altruistic people disagree. Um, you know, Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard himself, and Warren Buffett, maybe the most successful investor of all time. Both of them kind of don't aren't really huge fans of international investing. They're also, you know, Jack Bogle's now dead and Warren Buffett, I think, is around 90. They're also super old and maybe have just been informed by being, you know, living in the US during the time that the US was the biggest economic boom in, you know, the history of the world. Um, but the way I look at it is if if you add up all the value of all the companies of the world, the US makes up about half of that. And um, you know, there are great companies that exist outside the US, like Samsung and Nestle and Nintendo and Volkswagen and you know Chinese companies and European companies and Australian and I want to own those too right and so it's just because I think putting all your eggs in one country's basket even though the US is the economic superpower of the world maybe that won't be true for the next 50 years and so I don't like to speculate on sectors or individual companies or even entire countries and so I want to own it all and so I think a you know very reasonable allocation is about 50% US, 50% non-US, although we all in the US kind of have a home country bias. And so my portfolio is more similar to, you know, recommend portfolios you see out there, which is like 60 to 70% US, 30 to 40% international. Yeah, I like the 70-30 split. Um, and 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 that's what I, I, try, I was trying to do um, at one point was trying to do that, you know, because there's index funds uh, that are foreign and, and domestic for those that are listening. I mean, you know, and you can get you can do both on Vanguard and uh, or Fidelity. You know, there's some there's some good ones there, too. Uh, I, I'm I bought into the index fund thing. I think I bought into that because I understand it. You know, what you just said is easily digestible. You know, when I start listening to people talk about, you know, what sector in the economy we should be investing in or which company in that sector is a safe bet and all that. Well, I don't, I don't know that I understand that well, and I, I stick to the principle of I don't want to put my money where I don't understand. And uh, but when you say, hey, in this particular index fund, there's six thousand companies, and it's self cleansing too. By the way, like you know, as as companies rise to the top, there'll be more of that, and as others go out of business, they'll fall out, and so it's kind of self cleansing. Fees are really low. I understand that. I get that the fees are low because it's not professionally managed. So an index fund makes a lot of sense to me. So when that's explained to me, I go, man, I, that's where I want to put my money. I, I understand what I'm investing in, you know. So um, as soon as you say that, I relate to you 100%, you know, uh, uh, that, those choices. Because that's the same. I don't have a lot to invest with, but th that's the choices that I choose to make as well. So you're, you're saying it very humbly, but that's a very wise decision. Because I think a lot of people get into this trap of trying to be too smart. And, you know, I've done it too. You know, I've, I've in the past, in my past, I've said, oh, you know, I predict this is going to happen. I, the, from my view of the world, I have a sense of what's going to happen. But the reality is, is, you know, the market's very, very efficient. You know, if, for example, a year ago, everyone was sure Tesla was going to keep growing because it had done so well. So everyone was going all in on Tesla. And, you know, at that point, I'd seen enough of this where I was like, I was like, maybe not guys, because right when everyone is sure of something, the opposite tends to happen. And sure enough, now Tesla is down 60% or whatever it is. Um, you know, same for tech, same for, you know, there's all these like trends where people jump on them like, oh yeah, I can see it coming. And so it takes like a very experienced, disciplined, you know, intelligent person to say, hey, all that noise, you know, 
maybe there's something there, maybe there's not, but I'm going to stick with what I understand. And, and the, and the index, an index fund is a great example of that. So I don't think you should sell yourself short. I, I think it's, a, it's actually a smarter position to take that diversified approach, than get caught up chasing the fads and end up underperforming the market. I think while we're talking on the market, you know, let's, let's keep this going a little bit and then we'll shift gears. But I think many teachers that Brandon and I have discovered, they don't invest because number one, maybe they don't have a budget. They don't have a gap number with leftover money or so they don't think, but number two, they're just so confused on what investing is anyway. Okay. Well, I've got a traditional IRA. I've got a Roth IRA work has a 403B or a 457. A lot of people say, you know, just screw it. I'm not even going to do it. I'm not going to worry about it. But one of the things that opened my eyes the most about index fund investing was one of your awesome, I don't, I don't even know what you want to call it, I guess just graphics. And it's the graphics with the pie charts you have on fees. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between a single stock versus a mutual fund versus an index fund? And and what those fees might look like if you have a mutual fund at say a 2% fee versus an index fund at 0.04% and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm very sympathetic to those at the beginning of their investing journey who are intimidated by the landscape because it's terrifying. And there's this like $4 trillion financial services industry out there that the vast majority of it is not there for the benefit of the individual investor. It's there for them to make more money. And so, you know, options and futures and pork bellies and day trading and stock picking and, you know, crypto and life insurance and all this nonsense out there. You're right. It can just be so scary. Why even dip a toe in there? I'm going to get eaten by the piranhas. And, you know, the answer is like, yeah, a lot of that is scary, but I think it goes to one of your core tenets, the lifelong learning thing. If you can, if you can take a few hours and just read some, you know, good altruistic sources, they all are going to say the same thing. The noise you hear out in like the world of social media and the world, like, you know, just in media in general or pop culture, or whatever is going to seem very scary. But the books on this all basically say the same thing, which is what we're talking about on this, on this podcast. Um, and so to answer the question about the stock versus the mutual fund, Owning a stock is like the core unit of investment. You know, right now the biggest company in the world is Apple, and anyone they're publicly traded, which means anyone can buy a piece of the company Apple, buy a share as it's called, and it's you know I think it's a couple hundred bucks right now. And then when you buy a sh one share of Apple, you are due some of their profits called dividends. So every quarter, Apple takes all the money that they've made and spreads it out among their their owners. Um, it's not much. It's like you know for a two hundred dollars share, I think their current dividend payment is like less than a dollar. But you know once you start acquiring more shares, it becomes more and more. And so owning you know. By owning a share of Apple stock, you get paid dividends and you can maybe sell it for more later when it's worth more money because Apple has continued to improve. So it's a great way to invest. But the problem is, well, which stock do you buy? Should you buy Apple? Should you buy Amazon, Google? You know, there's tons of different stocks out there. And so enter a mutual fund. A mutual fund is basically another confusing sounding word, but it's when a bunch of people all mutually, like the three of us and a hundred other people all mutually pool our money and put it into an account, a fund. That's what a mutual fund is. Historically, then a smart manager would take that money. So like maybe each of us put in 5,000 bucks and then altogether there's a million bucks in there because however many people, 200 people, whatever, put their money in. Then this manager, their full-time job would be to take that million dollars and then pick stocks for us. So they'd say, okay, Apple's good, Tesla's bad, Amazon's good, ExxonMobil's bad, whatever. And then they would basically spend all that million dollars in the stock. That 
for years. That's, that's what's called an actively managed mutual fund because there's a manager who's actively choosing which stocks go in there. Historically, that was kind of a great way to invest. You know, it makes sense. We all can uh, relieve ourselves of having to make those decisions. And then there's a professional who's doing it for us. But the problem with that is, is they've studied, you know, basically every single year, you can just read the latest article that comes out about these studies of these actively managed mutual funds. And the, like the dirty little secret of the industry is that they, they don't do better than random at picking stocks because all these actively managed mutual fund managers are competing against each other. You know, one sells some Apple, one buys some Apple, one sells some ExxonMobil, one buys some ExxonMobil. And so they're all competing against each other. And so it all basically comes down to wash. But what they're all also doing is charging the fees that you referred to. And so, you know, maybe if you walked into your, you know, um, strip mall financial advisor and gave them your $5,000, they would charge you a statement fee, a monthly fee, an, an annual fee, a, a a load that is a transactional fee whenever you put more money in. And then there's an annual fee being charged by these, these managers. You know, if those add up to 2%, for example, I think my graphic you're referring to says, you know, if you put $10,000 into one of those funds, and you waited 40 years, you'd have about 250,000 bucks, which is great. But if you put $10,000 into an index fund, which basically removes all those fees and is very, very low cost, instead of 250,000, you'd have like 450,000, almost double. And so those fees that add up from your average, you know, strip mall financial advisor and actively managed mutual fund, while they might look small in the moment, you know, 10 bucks here, 50 bucks there, whatever, can erode half of the value of your investment over the course of investing career. So that's why I love index funds. That's the part that I think is the <clears throat> the the uh, the tricky part. Because when you hear two percent, you're like, "Well, that's not bad." Two two percent? That's all they're going to charge you? You know, to have an actively managed managed uh, mutual fund that you know has a chance to do well. There's two parts to that though. The first part is the dirty little secret that actually is a lot of mutual funds go under and that they don't actually don't outperform the index funds. But the other thing is is that I think we they just underestimate what the two percent or three percent or whatever the the fees are. They underestimate just how big of an impact is on the, you know, the overall investment until they see a graphic like that, and then you see that graphic and your eyes just kind of light up. You're like, oh my goodness, I didn't know it was. And you know now they have uh, index fund that are zero percent. I mean, no fees at all. You know, I think FZROX with Fidelity is zero zero percent, no fees, yep. and. Um, and so, you know, when you consider that, it just seems like it seems like a no brainer. I think I saw a statistic where it was 87 percent um, of the mutual fund uh, or what was it? Uh, there's only it's, I forgot what the percentage was, but it was like 87 percent of mutual funds do not outperform the index funds or something like that. So and then you just have to be lucky enough to pick the 13 percent that or whatever that actually do outperform. Well, the, the problem is they've done that study. They actually, in, in Jack Bogle's book, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but they basically looked at over a decade that, you know, 87% underperformed, like made less than the market. So they're right. like, okay, these 13% are the good ones. Let's just look at those for the next decade. Over the next decade of that, those winning 13% over the next decade, 87% of those underperformed. Oh, and wow. then they said, okay, let's just look at, the now the ones that have won two decades in a row, the 13% of the 13%, which is like, you know, 2% or whatever it is, look at those over the next decade. And of those 80% underperformed. And then there basically was left with of the, you know, 3000 funds they looked at at the beginning, there was like two that had beat the market over three consecutive decades. And then he named them. He's like, congrats to them. But it's, it's basically a survivorship bias, which is saying, Hey, 
if if they're all just flipping coins, if it's all just totally random, we're expecting some to just get lucky and luckily get the good stocks. But then if you pick those winning coins for the next decade, they're no more likely to be lucky than the other ones. And so if looking backwards, you just pick the winner, you're like, oh, this coin is lucky. It's always heads. You know, it's it's called survivorship bias because of course one is going to have beaten the market just by luck, but that's not predictable going forward. And that's also these mutual fund companies love to play that trick where they they just have dozens and dozens of different funds. Some, you know, most do poorly, a few do well. And then in their marketing, when they're giving you the sales pitch, they'll just show you the winners and say, hey, see, this one did well, invest in that one without telling you the dirty little secret that it's not likely to keep happening going forward. So let's let's shift a little bit to teachers. So we've got listeners of this show. Let's say they're a single teacher making, you know, 50, 60,000 a year. Maybe we have a married couple of teachers that they're making 100 to 125,000. Can you talk to these teachers even on those salaries? Middle income, sometimes lower middle income depending on where you're at. Can you talk to these teachers about how they can still be successful with money over the long term and is there hope available? to somebody out there making 50,000 as a single person, or maybe making a hundred as a couple. There sure is. Yeah. First, like I love teachers. My grandmother was a teacher. My aunt's a teacher. I personally feel very thankful and grateful to the teachers in my life who I think took a huge part in shaping me into whatever success I have today. Um, And I also think teachers are underpaid. I think that, you know, I think the long-term problems of society always come back to education, you know, any sort of like political band-aids that people want to put on during any given administration. I think it, I think, you know, this, this is just my world of the worldview is like, it all comes back to education. So, you know, I have unlimited respect and sympathy for, for educators, but that said, you know, it is what it is. So you, you make what you make, you, the, the, it's the career you've chosen. Um, and yeah, there's, there's hope for sure. You know, um, if you, like someone who makes $200,000 a year, if you spend $200,000 a year, you're broke at the end. Whereas if you make 50,000 and you spend 40,000, you have $10,000 a year that you didn't spend, you saved. And that's, you know, way more than the person who spent all their money. And if you can, you know, I'm, I'm just speaking in big numbers, now 10,000 is a lot, but if you can save and invest 10,000 a year, you'll easily be a multimillionaire over the course of your career. And someone might be saying, oh man, like I couldn't live on 40. Like you want to know how to live on 40? Ask someone who makes 40. There are people out there, you know, I I was living on 36,000 in Southern California for six years before I sold my company, you know? uh, And so I don't mean to say it as a point of shame, but if, you know, frugality, I think we actually both have, you know, you guys have like three tenants. I have two rules. Like my rules are rule number one, live below your means. And rule number two, invest early and often. And no matter what you make, you got to spend less than you make. And so if you can figure out how to carve some of that money out of your income and put that to work for you, then you'll be on the wealth building journey. And, and also, I think when people start doing it and then they see some traction, they're like, oh, wait, my money is making money. You know, teaching is hard. You know, 30, 40 students in a classroom, grading papers, grading tests, you know, coaching after school. I mean, that, that, is, that is exhausting. Money making money is very easy. And so when you can put a few hundred bucks a month away and let that money make money, then you start to see work and then it starts to accelerate. I think, uh, Brandon, you were saying that that it often goes faster than the projections. And I think that's often because once people see it start to work, then they double down like, oh, you know what? I can you know work that extra side hustle or I can cut out this bill or whatever it is. And then it goes even faster. One of the things that we have discovered doing the show is that 
even those doing well don't really execute a budget. You know, they may pay themselves first, which is a, a budgeting style, but they're not really maximizing every penny. And a, a lot of a lot of the folks that we've interviewed, they use a zero-based budget or some sort of a spreadsheet budget where they're zeroing everything out. And I would never uh, ridicule that system. That system certainly works. But one thing that I will say is that if you're giving every penny an assignment, so to speak, and you're zeroing your budget out, it's very possible that you are not giving every penny the right assignment. And so as a result, you look at $50,000 and you say, well, there's no way I can live on 40. And, but you're absolutely right. You can actually live on 40. And so, you know, we, we've been advocating a, a percentage-based budget where, um, you know, you, your living expenses are 50% max, maximum 50%. You don't live on more than 50%. Um, your maximum debt allocation is 30%. And your saving investing is 20%. And that would be the minimums. Like so, so the minimum is 20%, the max is 30, the max is 50. And then once you get there, you know, you're in a situation where um, now you can begin to think about okay, how can I get my living expenses a little lower so that I can actually increase my saving investing? Because then if I can get my living expenses down to 45%, I got 25% for for saving and investing. You know, okay, I just paid off that student loan. So now my debt allocation just fell some. I can add that to the saving investing if I want to. There's some flexibility because you could add that to your uh, living expenses if you like, but using a percentage-based budget, you can start trying to give every penny the right assignment. And I really think that what people will find, and I'm just going to, this this will be my first year doing this, what you just said. Um, but going into 2023, I'm actually going to look at my total net income and figure out how to live on less than I'm, I lived on last year. So, uh, you know, look at an annual budget uh, as opposed to just looking at it monthly the way that I normally do. And then if I can do that, well, then why can't I project that out over five years or 10 years and begin to think about just, okay, over the next 10 years, how much money can I actually save and invest and, and start looking at the big picture as opposed, as opposed to the smaller picture. And I bet I can figure out how to live on less than 50%. If I start seeing what the numbers can do, as opposed to what they, as opposed to looking at everything in the short term, you know, and, so we've been really kind of advocating for a percentage-based budget. Um, and, and I would say, I would say we're in, you know, I wouldn't say we're saying this is what you have to do. It's nothing like that, but it's, it's something to think about though. I think it's a better framework for thinking about your money. Um, I'd be interested to know what you think about that. Yeah. I mean, I love a few things you said there. One is that a habit I see among really successful people is thinking long-term and if you're just looking at your paycheck, you know, thinking about monthly payments, monthly costs, you can just you kind of get stuck in this this mouse wheel or this rat race. And you know, the worst kind, worst example of that is things like, you know, um, like rent to own or or splitting. You know, sometimes online now you like see a TV for two hundred bucks, but it's gonna let you pay twelve bucks a month or something like that. If you're like paying monthly for all this stuff, you're just your expenses are going to balloon and then you're going to, you know, that debt portion, your percentage you were mentioning is just going to get bigger and bigger. And then you're going to be even in a worse position. Whereas when you're thinking about, Hey, what's this look for the, like the year, what's the total amount I'm going to spend? What's it's going to project out to for 10 years. I think that totally just is a mindset shift where then you feel, you know, better about saving, better about being frugal, better about putting your mind to work. Um, you know, the percentages, I, I love it. You know, the debt thing, it depends on how much debt people have. I think um, 20% is awesome. And getting that number, like you said, having 20% be the minimum, getting it to be bigger and bigger. Um, I do like the simplicity. Um, I think that 
some people, you know, I, I currently, I, I believe that not every single person is going to like write down every single expense they ever make and, and, and track it that carefully. I just think that's the reality of human behavior. So I think having a simpler process in place where you make sure that the, you know, the debt's paid, the investment's made. And then, you know, if you go to Starbucks or not, like who cares, as long as the big things are done correctly, I think then you're going to be in great shape. And if you make the more money you make, the, the looser you can get with that. Right. I mean, so, so people that make, um, people that are doing better. I mean, and Davis talked about this on the show, you know, as, as Dave and his wife have done better and better, they're able to be a little looser. Whereas when you're in debt, you can't be loose at all. You've got to be tight on everything. And as you're just starting to build wealth. And so when you're a middle income earner, uh, let's say you're a single teacher and you make $50,000 a year, you, you can't just go to Starbucks anytime you want to. I mean, you've really got to be, so success is almost dependent upon overcoming that human nature of being loose. You know, you, you, you kind of have to make it happen until, you know, you sort of get the ball running and the ball rolling. And then, and then perhaps you can take your foot off the gas a little bit, but um, it's, it's really tough. That's how people get into, into, into credit card debt and all that, because they end up hemorrhaging because they don't keep up with it. They don't check their spending against their budget on a daily basis, or at least a bare minimum, a weekly basis, and they get out of control. And so that, that is human nature. And that's why the numbers look like they look nationally, you know, Jeremy, I know that everybody's situation is different. Uh, and obviously you're in Southern California, which is a high cost of living area, but can you share some of the tips maybe or tricks that you used and sacrifices that you made to live off of $36,000 yeah. annually? And, and, and who knows, maybe that benefits a teacher and they didn't realize, well, maybe I could cut back in that area. If this guy can do this and you know, San Diego, maybe I can do this in rural North Carolina where it's a much cheaper cost of living. What are sacrifices that you made to live off the 36K? Yeah, I've kind of had it both ways. You know, I was living on, you know, 3000 bucks a month in Southern California. And now obviously I'm like decently wealthy and can like loosen up a little bit. Um, and I'm still, I still think I'm naturally frugal. It's, it, it is a hard thing to learn. I definitely see like two types of people, people who are just natural savers, but some are afraid to invest because they have that same kind of like, um, mentality of, of keeping their money close to their chest, whatever. And so they need to be a little bit more aggressive on the investing side, but then there are some just natural spenders who, you know, really need to learn how to buckle down. Um, I'd say the first place to look is the two big ones is housing and transportation. Um, and it's not fun, right? It's not fun to consider living a more frugal life. You know, um, I had roommates, like I was living, I was, in my, I was 30 when I moved or 29 or 30, when I moved to San Diego, it would have been great to have my own place, but I didn't, I had a, I had a roommate. And so we got a two bedroom and, uh, I think it was 1400 bucks a month, which was like a steal. We like really shopped around, you know, lots of places about 2000. This was about 10 years ago. And so, so I was paying 700 bucks a month and I, that was pretty good. And in terms of the car, um, I, my, when I was in my mid twenties, I got a loan for a car. I bought a, you know, it was a used car, but it was a $10,000 Mustang. And I, got a loan from a credit union and was just paying the back for years. And then after I sold that car, I was like, I, I sold it when I moved. I was like, that's dumb. I don't like car payments. And so I sold that car for 6,000 and I bought a car for 3,000. I bought a, a, a 99 Ford Explorer Sport. It was a two-door SUV, which is the perfect blend of inconvenience and poor gas mileage. Um, <laughs> don't recommend that specific car. I know it was actually a great car. So, and like, you know, no one cares. Like I, I think everyone, you know, we're just, we can all get caught up in this like pop culture materialistic world where you see the, all the the advertisements, the billboard and, the, and you're like, oh, like low payments and, and lease it or whatever. But, you know, 
I just, I said, you know, screw that. I'm just going to go on Craigslist. I found a $3,000 car, you know, I took it for a test drive. Mm. And I drove it for six years, every year or so something broke on it and I had to pay 500 bucks or so to get fixed, which wasn't great, but a once a year repair for 500 bucks beats the heck out of an every month car payment of 500 bucks, right? That's 11 $500 car payments I wasn't making every year. And, you know, that car driving that for six years allowed me to basically save those, the difference in my total cost of driving from what it would have been if I would have been borrowing money for car and investing that along the way. And so, yeah, those are the two big ones, like really consider housing and transportation. And then, you know, look, if you can like take a month of your expenses and look where you're spending your money. I think a lot of people don't even realize like maybe it's Amazon. Maybe you're, you know, if you're getting Uber Eats or something, you know, that's got, gets like cra crazy expensive. A, san a sandwich at the place near me is $8, but if you get Uber Eats, it's like $26. It's like outrageous. And, and then $8 is more expensive than if you go to the grocery store. And so it's, it's crazy. Like the scale of how quickly money will spend if you're not disciplined about where it goes. I work with teachers that every single day they walk in with a fast food bag uh, for breakfast, you know, and I'm thinking, and you know, a big, big, large cup of uh, soda, you know, the ice uh, shaking around in the cup. And I think to myself, man, they are spending probably somewhere between five and $10 every morning on lunch. And, you know, you start doing the math on that. And then, you know, we talk about subscriptions, you know, people have subscriptions that, you know, it's, it's only a few bucks a month. You don't even think about it, but you add them up and it's, it's quite a bit. And, we talk about the grocery budget, the eating out budget. And, you know, these are all things that are just kind of part of our culture's daily life. And we don't think about it. But then when you go back through and you add up all those expenses, you realize, man, if I would have just ate, you know, the proverbial rice and beans diet at home, I could have saved enough to max out my Roth IRA probably, which is huge for a middle income earner, you know, uh, if they can do something like that. So um, definitely, uh, you know, just the extreme frugality and I mean, you said, you know, you talk about housing and transportation, but then all those other things too, uh, you can really make it happen. What, what was your, what was your food budget like when you were on uh, your eating out budget? Like when you were living on 36 K it was, I remember if, so if my credit card bill was over a thousand dollars, I was like freaked out, you know, so everything, health insurance, uh, subscriptions, um, you know, food, entertainment, gas, all that stuff was under a thousand dollars. So food was maybe three to 400 of that. And for me, eating out was like going to subway or something like that was like, that was like a, a splurge, you know, not like going to a $200 dinner. Um, but even that, like that scale is massive. Like a subway eating out is like 10 bucks or something like a hundred dollar dinner is like 10 of those. Um, and so it does, and it does take discipline. Actually right now in my life is kind of an interesting period because I had, you know, I can eat out whenever I want now. I financially, that's fine at, at my level of you know wealth or whatever. But I've kind of found myself on a fitness journey recently where I have started spending my Sundays where I make a big, huge dinner that I basically split into six or seven dinners. So I have like a really healthy meal. It's like meal prepping for the next week. And it's really cheap. It's like I buy chicken and vegetables and rice or, you know, some meal I try and mix up every week, but it's like some combination of relatively inexpensive, you know, um, groceries and those groceries are maybe you know 50 to 75 bucks a week and then my my eating out expenses were it was like a thousand dollars a month has dropped to like 100 or 200 because now instead of just like just being like not lazy but just being like deciding at the last moment oh i'm hungry what do i do i don't feel like cooking just go out to a restaurant go out to a restaurant i was a little bit disciplined a little bit, a little bit purposeful about making that doing that meal prep once a week and then 
like eating is so easy because I'm, it's like the decision's already made. It comes, it comes out of right out of the fridge, ready to go. It's super healthy. I'm like getting, like, I can see changes. I'm getting stronger and I'm saving like 700 bucks a month. Right. So I feel like that teacher that is coming with a fast food bag, it's just almost out of like habit or, or, you know, just a little bit of discipline to say, Hey, what if I made five breakfasts, you know, on Sunday and then, then I can save that 50 bucks at a, at a restaurant that week. Yeah. That yeah. credit card saving a lot of teachers coach, you know, and you were giving me a hard time last year. I remember I was going through one of those tough bouts and Jeremy said it being a teacher, especially being an effective teacher, it's exhausting. And then if you're coaching after school, Brandon and I have both been varsity coaches for a really long time. And then I, I've got kids now. So there were times where I teach and then immediately I go to practice, but if I didn't plan accordingly, uh, I have maybe a 10 minute window window before I have to go pick up my kids and then coach their sports teams. It's like, I'll just go through Wendy's. Uh, I'll order Chipotle online. I'll just go in and run in and pick it up and eat it in the car really quick. All of a sudden you start doing that and you don't have a plan for life. Fast food will have a plan for you and the credit card as well. And then you realize, man, I spent $80 this week just on eating out all due to improper planning. And coach Spice would get on me and say, Coach, got to do a better job planning. Another week of poor planning, coach. Got to meal prep. I love what you just said about meal prepping. Meal prepping is that that's big. You gotta you gotta do it. Either that or do like I'm doing right now. I'm on a health kick too right now because I have, I had my weighted ballooned up and I wasn't doing well at all. Um, and you know the doctor kind of got onto me on one of my visits and I said, well, I got to do something about this. And uh, and so I've been eating like eggs and beans. And I mean that you talk, it doesn't get any easier to prep eggs and beans, man. You know, yeah. scramble a few eggs throw a can of pinto beans in and man, you know, you've got dinner and it's really quick. But um, I would say though, uh, Jeremy, your story the you know, certainly you know what it is to, to live frugally. And I do think you're right. Some people are wired as spenders. Some people are wired as savers and, but you know, I'm wired as a spender for sure. But I did find that um, right now I'm trying to invest in myself and I'm paying, paying, I'm using my investment money to go to put towards my master's degree. But when I was investing uh, in, in, in an index fund, I found that that same habit uh, of spending came through. I would tell Dave, I was like, you know, I think I could buy three shares this month. You know, <laughs> all of a sudden I wanted to spend money on shares and it was just kind of refocusing the spending. But but certainly frugality is a part of your story. But I would say fearlessness is a is a it seems like a big part of your story because it is a scary thing to start your own business, to turn down a job with Microsoft and then start your own business and then kind of bet on yourself having to only pay yourself 36 K a year, you know, living on credit cards, really struggling, but still believing in yourself to keep doing that. Uh, I'd love to hear, you know, you talk just a little bit about how fearlessness really kind of played into your financial story. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I, I don't know if I can claim as fearlessness or naivety or, or hubris of youth or something. I don't know what it was, but I didn't want to be a cog in the machine at Microsoft. Um, I, I like that company. It was a great job. You know, they treated their employees great. So I have nothing against them or anything, but it just wasn't for me. And um, I also, you know, thinking about like the best case scenario, I, I didn't just didn't love the idea of, of like being a lifelong Microsoft employee. Whereas I liked the idea of starting my own company and doing my own thing. And so um I, I decided to go for it and I, I did have a backup plan. You know, I wasn't reckless. I, I think maybe fearlessness and recklessness are not the same thing. Um, I, I was careful. I was, I was living on credit cards for the first couple of years. 
Um, and so I racked up about $12,000 in credit card debt just to like buy the bare minimum groceries. It was like rice and beans just to, uh, you know, feed myself. Um, but the, the backup plan was always to basically go back to Microsoft or some other company and like beg for the, beg them for a job. And I was like, you know, uh, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to try it. I'm going to try hard, but I'm going to be careful too. So if I need to, I can go get a job and pay off this credit card debt in, you know, a year or less because that salary would easy, easily allow me to, um, I don't know, I guess I just, there's something I'm relatively ambitious, I think. Um, and I just like going for, you know, just doing things because I think they're worth doing, not just because that's what, you know, we're supposed to do. I'm interested to hear about you being a lifelong learner. Cause that's a big thing we talk about in education. We talk about that in our book at what age did you have a turnaround or was it not a turnaround when it comes to learning about 401ks and the 4% rule and safe withdrawal rates? Is this something that you know, obviously you're a smart guy. You started your own company, sold it for four or 5 million bucks. You went to Michigan, which is you know, an Ivy league public school. Basically you're very intelligent, but, um, is this something that you were always fascinated in? Or is this something that as you sold the company, you felt the weight of, man, I have $2 million. I need to learn more about money. When did that click? Yeah, I was, I love the lifelong learner thing. That's huge. The, if anything, I should be doing more of it. Um, but I tried to do more than zero. Um, yeah. So I sold my company at 34. I got that $2 million check and I had heard stories about garbage men who win the lottery and then become garbage men again, two years later, cause they burned through the money or NFL players who go broke at a rate of 70% or whatever it is. Um, and I, you know, I think a lot of smart people have, uh, have trouble delineating where their expertise ends. Like doctors are notoriously horrible investors because, you know, in my opinion, they're, they're deferred to all day at work. You know, they're saving lives. Like everyone in the hospital looks to them as the experts. And so then when they leave the hospital and go to invest, they just assume that they're great at it and, and they're not. And so they, they, they speculate, they do bad things. And so, um, I didn't want that for myself. And so when I sold my company, I started reading, I started reading every book I could on personal finance and investing. I went to Amazon. I searched, beginning investing book or something like that. And I got a, a book called the beginning guide to investing. And it was like a hundred pages. It was very simple. And I was like, Oh, that makes tons of sense. And then I like read the second and third and fourth. I was like, all these books say the exact same thing. And it starts to like paint this like very solid picture. Um, but yeah, I think that's incredibly important. I still, to this day, like, I think I know a lot more about money investing than most people do, but I still try to keep reading all the time and keep learning. I think that the world is changing. There's always more. I sometimes I don't know what my own blind spots are. So I think it's incredibly important. And I, and I credit that for, you know, where I am today. If I, if I wasn't, you know, if I took the doctor route and said, Oh, I'm a startup guy. I'm a tech guy. I went to Michigan. I know how to invest. I'm going to buy Tesla. I'm going to trade stocks, whatever. Um, I'd probably have done much more poorly than I did, you know, kind of learning and, and being humble enough to, know that other people who have trafficked this ground before me are going to give me some good hints rather than me just trying to know it myself. I think Coach, probably, I, I was going to say, I was going to say, no. I think probably in a, in a second book, we could, uh, as another imperative, be humble would probably be another imperative, it, it, but it goes hand in hand with the being a lifelong learner. I also think being a lifelong learner is a, um, it, it's not just learning new things. It's constantly reviewing the things that you already know as encouragement to continue the path. I, I, you know, I found for myself, 
when Dave and I aren't recording, because we'll record way ahead, of, uh, way in advance. When we're not recording, Dave will tell you I kind of go downhill a little bit in my in my in my motivation. Uh, and and you know, I, but when we're recording, when I'm when I'm interviewing guys like you, and when I'm uh, certainly when I'm reading personal finance books, even books that I've already read before, and I go back and reread a book or or something like that, it it gives me a shot in the arm to to keep moving forward you know, with trying to execute a budget and trying to invest and trying to, you know, do these things that result in, in winning with money. And so being a lifelong learner is about learning new things, but it's also just about reviewing the things that you already knew. So you don't forget, which is easy to do when your emotions get involved. And coach, what he said is not, I'm not, I don't want to say it all started with a book, but a lot of this started with a book. It did. It did. So, you know, a book can change lives. And Jeremy, you're the thing is, is that you're, you're, that third imperative, you're playing a big role in that with what you're doing with the Personal Finance Club. You are educating a lot of people and uh, and really helping people out and giving people that shot in the arm they need when they're scrolling through Facebook and they see that one of those graphics, you know. And and so thank you for everything that you're doing, uh, you know, to, to try to help people learn and, and become those lifelong learners they need to be in order to win with money. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think even in the investing world, it's important to stay, you know, just like you said, stay motivated because it's so easy, you know, this year, for example, the market's down 16% year to date, something like that. It's so easy for people to be like, oh, okay, this isn't working. Let's, you know, let's throw away what we were doing before, try something else. But if you don't stay the course and stay persistent, keep sticking to the plan. And a lot of that takes this like external motivation from like reading or getting encouragement and which is a lot of what I try to do. Like, you know, my little Instagram feed is plays like a tiny fraction of a percent of some person's day but hopefully if they see the consistent message being like hey the market's volatile over short periods of time we know that it's still a great time to invest early and often stay the course keep going don't wait till it rebounds 30 percent, and then you miss that entire run up um you guys you gotta stay motivated along the way and so i think that's really important in pretty much every aspect of life but in my specific discipline too coach and i think a lot of teachers that i've come across and i know i was a teacher like this at one point is as Jeremy mentioned, maybe like being a doctor, we're supposed to be experts in our area or our field. And I think a lot of times teachers get down on themselves when it comes to personal finance that again, they just end up giving up because they don't want to look embarrassed. They're used to being able to have the answers and know what to do. So a lot of them due to, you know, the lack of, you know, wanting to get embarrassed, they just don't ever start coach. Yeah. My superpower has been that I've, I've always said I'm, I'm always behind the learning curve, but eventually I get there. Uh, that's, that's, that's kind of my thing, what I say. And, and, and I'm definitely, I, I think my superpower is, is I don't mind not knowing because uh, that's the only way I'm ever going to know is if I ask. So if I ask a, a question that someone thinks is stupid, that's fine. I'm good with that. Um, as long as I learn it, you know, that that's the whole thing. And so I, I, I kick myself for being so far behind the learning curve on my personal finance journey. I wish that I would have asked those questions you know, instead of reading some of the things that I was reading in my 20s, I wish I would have picked up a personal finance book, but it is what it is. You know, I waited until late in the game to get started in this. But uh, Dave, I think a superpower for, for a teacher would be to put that pride aside and to be humble enough to ask questions, read books, go to websites, read blogs, you know, and just and just or ask the people around you that are doing well. If I'm at Jacksonville High School and I'm 22 years old, I'm asking Dave Fleischer, you know, what do I need to do with my money? Uh, and, and that's a key, man. That's a superpower. If you can be humble enough to do that. And, and one of the things I'm going to say is go follow Jeremy at personal finance club. Jeremy, can you tell us a little bit about where our listeners can find you? 
Yeah, I, I love that. Be humble because even I feel that pressure, that pride. Like, oh, like I'm online representing myself as this expert. But I think something I remind myself of is it's like it's okay to say I don't know. It's okay to go learn along the way, learn with you know with my with my followers. But yeah, my you know my brand is called Personal Finance Club. We basically teach beginning investing in personal finance. Uh, most of the magic happens on Instagram at Personal Finance Club. We've also got a website and a TikTok and a YouTube. Um, yeah, so give us a follow if you want to check it out. Awesome, Jeremy. We greatly appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to help us here in North Carolina and helping the teachers across the country. Coach Spees, good seeing you as always. And thank you to all the listeners for joining us on this, this week's version of the Fit Educator Podcast. We hope you join us for next week. And remember... Be frugal, be fearless, and be a lifelong learner. Take care, everybody.